0: Hi, I'm Wilson Gall.
1: And I'm Ellie Roark.
0: We are bringing you some current research and questions and ideas from bird research. Uh, Every episode, we pick one article and just talk about it for a while. Today, we're looking at an article, a study called Predictors of Flight Behavior in Rural and Urban Songbirds. This is by Catherine Battle, uh, Sarah Foltz, and Ignacio Moore in the Wilson Journal of Ornithology. So I would say that on the whole, this is not a particularly uh, sort of like cutting edge question or study. Sure. Um, so it's, it's not a hot topic in terms of, of revealing really new things that have never been known, but it is a hot topic in that there's just a lot of research about this. I happen to have another, uh, printed copy of a different edition of the Wilson journal, and it's got a very similar article about, um, the flushing of golden eagles in response to recreation.
1: Hmm. Yeah. And it is an interesting question, which is why so many people have researched it, I'm sure.
0: Yeah, and what is particularly interesting about it is this is one of the really, like, directly applicable, most directly applicable types of questions uh, from a management standpoint. Because what this is right. studying is um, how, how close you can get to a bird before you sort of startle it and make it fly away. Right. Um, and so so this is I've seen many studies where this is used for all sorts of recreation and other kinds of scenarios where you have people in the same habitats as birds and you want to know how much you're disturbing the birds.
1: Right. One of the things that's most interesting about birds and why we watch them and study them is because they're really accessible. People can get up close to them and and see what's happening. But the question is always uh, how does that affect the bird population?
0: Yeah, right. And so this study uses what they call flight initiation distance, which is basically just the distance that an, uh, uh, at which a bird uh, flies away from an approaching object, human or whatever. Uh, and then they also use alert distance, which is sort of the distance at which a bird changes its behavior because it seems to have noticed a human. And that's a little harder, it's a little more subjective of a measure. Um, sure. But uh, Ellie, you worked with raptors for a while, and you were telling me once that If they're standing on one foot, they're probably pretty relaxed, and when they put their second foot down, that's an indication of agitation? Is that...
1: Yeah, certainly. I'm not an expert on raptor behavior in the wild, but in a captive setting, that's certainly a good indicator. If they're on one foot, they feel fairly relaxed, like they don't need to be pushing off to get away quickly, whereas on two feet, looking around, they're uh, a little more on alert, ready for, for anything that might happen.
0: And we've seen that, uh, I remember looking at a great horned owl, and as we got, and when we were far away through the binoculars, it was standing on one foot. As we got closer, it kind of turned its head towards us and put its second foot down. Yeah. And we took that as a sign that we were too close and backed away so we didn't disturb it. But nevertheless, the, that sort of alert distance is a somewhat more subjective measure than this sort of flushing or, or the distance at which it flies. That's really easy to see. It's sitting on a branch, and then at some point you get cl- too close and it flies away.
1: Right. So specifically, this study wanted to look at how birds behave, how birds react to uh, human disturbance, and they wanted to look at it in uh, urban environments versus rural environments and between species. Um, So they were... Specifically, this study looked at um, northern cardinals and song sparrows. So they were trying to figure out whether or not there are differences between those species and how how quickly they flushed um, or became alert to human disturbance. And whether that alertness and flushing distance changed depending whether they were in an urban environment where you might expect that they become a little more accustomed to human disturbance or in a rural environment where... Uh, you might expect that they're not terribly accustomed to human presence.
0: And I think I just want to kind of foreshadow what I think actually does make this kind of study very exciting, even from a sort of uh, more theoretical standpoint, and that is that you could sort of look at this in two different ways. Um, Number one is that maybe birds in an urban setting, in a park or something, are more habituated to people, and so they learn to not be quite so scared. Uh, But, it's also very possible, I think, that there's some sort of a local evolutionary adaptation going on where there's actually a selection pressure in urban areas for birds that are less concerned or, or agitated by human approach because those birds would be able to continue eating or continue doing whatever longer um, than birds that are flying off all the time. Right, so, and
1: ultimately be more successful because of that. Yeah. yeah.
0: So this has both real pla- practical management implications, but also this can be a window into... Evolution and adaptation at sort of small local scales within a species, and also um, evolution in heavily human-dominated uh, or, or human-impacted areas.
1: Yeah, totally.
0: So what were the, Ellie, what, what were the, the study authors' main predictions before going into the study? What so they, they studied cardinals and song sparrows in both urban and rural areas, and what were they expecting to find? regarding the flight initiation distance
1: well they were expecting to find that um urban areas would have a shorter flight initiation difference distance meaning that uh birds would you could get much closer to the bird before it flushed than rural birds
0: so a rural bird would fly away kind of really soon after it sees me where an urban bird I could walk much closer to it before it flies away.
1: Exactly. Which is kind of what you'd expect. That's what the authors were hypothesizing. That's what you might expect um, just based on your own experiences birding. (laughs) I I could say that for me at least. That's what I might expect based on my own experiences birding.
0: And that's been seen for a lot of very different bird species in a lot of different contexts.
1: Right. Um, They were also expecting that they might see cardinals flush a little quicker than song sparrows um, based on human disturbance because cardinals are much more conspicuous. A song sparrow might become alert to your presence and then count on its camouflage because it's a little brown bird to kind of keep it hidden while you approach it. Um, Whereas a cardinal is a very loud, very conspicuous bird. And um, as soon as it's been seen, it it may flush a little quicker because it doesn't have that camouflage
0: yeah though i should note that this is this is one of those evolutionary or natural selection questions that is actually really hard to test so Mm. the explanation you just gave makes a lot of sense
1: sure yeah because to
0: us that looks like a brightly colored bird and that's the most obvious difference between them but whether that thing that seems obvious to us is actually a a relevant selection pressures can be really difficult to test and one thing these authors talk about is that there have been lots of different ideas put forward about why some species will tolerate a closer approach yeah. before they fly than another species. And sometimes uh, that might have to do with sort of behavioral life history traits. Um, it might have to do with the availability of food. You know, if there's a real need to keep gathering food, they might wait for, for a, a potential threat to get closer before it's worth flying away. And the idea has been put forward that it has to do with how visually conspicuous they are, that, that thing you just described. Right, but
1: it's very hard to isolate any one of those factors so that they're not all kind of correlating with each other.
0: Um, right. And one of the things that sometimes makes it hard to pick those things apart in studies is that birds that are closely related sort of ancestrally uh, might have similar behaviors not just, just because they haven't had enough time to diverge. So just because you see similar behaviors in two closely related birds doesn't mean that they, that sort of both birds have, have adapted uh, to have those behaviors because they're beneficial. It's possible that the ancestor had that behavior, their common ancestor had the behavior, Hmm. and these birds just haven't had time to, to lose that yet.
1: Hmm. So it's, it's
0: called phylogenetic, like, correlation or or you have to many studies try to account for the phylogenetic distance or how closely related birds are because that can make birds more similar than you would expect just based on the sort of environmental pressures. Yeah. So one of the things about these birds is that the cardinal and the song sparrow these authors say you know are mostly similar in most of their life history traits. They use similar habitats. They kind of uh, you know, both of them are non-migratory in this population they studied. All these things are similar. The One of the big obvious differences is the coloration. And so so maybe this study lets us get at that coloration or conspicuousness aspect a little better. But But it's still a really hard thing to test and demonstrate with any rigor.
1: Yeah. So, Wilson, do you want to talk to us a little bit about how they went about testing these differences that we've been asking about?
0: Yeah so it's a really it's it's a a nice really simple study design and probably um, you know you could think up the same design in 10 minutes basically yourself if you wanted to test something like this. We've all experienced uh, walking along and and seeing a bird and as we walk closer the bird stops singing and looks at us and then we get a little closer and the bird flies away. And so all these authors did here is um, one of them went out birding and would see a bird And they limited their study to male birds that were singing on perches. So they would find a a bird that's sitting on a perch, singing away, and then they'd start walking towards it. And um, the the author would sort of drop a marker on the ground when they started walking towards the bird. When they saw the bird change behavior or give that alert distance thing, stop singing or whatever, they would drop another marker. And then they keep walking towards it at a steady pace. And then when the bird flies off, they drop another a third marker yeah onto the ground and then once the bird has flied off then they go to the perch where the bird was sitting and they measure the distance from that bird's perch to each of those three markers so this lets them get a, a sort of a straight line distance measure of um, how far from the bird's perch they were when the bird flew off and they did sort of make sure that the perches were all pretty low below five meters above the ground and so there wasn't any big difference based on the sort of the triangle fact um, So they were able to to measure the distance from the bird's perch to to where they were when the bird flew off.
1: So they did this approach towards the bird in four different ways. Basically, they wanted to test whether um, direct eye contact with the bird made a difference in how threatened the bird felt. And they wanted to see whether birds were sensitive to humans in particular or whether any object uh, or thing moving towards them also caused the same type of um, flight, flushing behavior, essentially. So the four different test methods they used were the one we just described, where the human kind of walks towards the bird directly, looking at it directly, making eye contact with the bird. Then they did a second approach where a person put sunglasses on to try to obscure their eye contact, direct eye contact with the bird, and walked directly towards the bird. And
0: that, that of course, is because of the thought that maybe the bird is looking for a sign that it's been seen, right? So right. if you're moving sure. towards it but not looking directly at it, maybe the bird would think, hey, it hasn't seen me, and so it would just stay there. So that's what this eye test is about.
1: Yeah, and then their third treatment was... Um, holding up a giant umbrella in front of them and walking towards the bird. An open umbrella. Um, so that you conceal the fact that you are human, essentially, and it just looks like a foreign object moving towards the bird. And the fourth treatment was a big umbrella with eyes spray painted on it um, to introduce that kind of direct eye contact threat potentially, but still have it in the foreign object of an umbrella rather than an individual, you know, human approaching the bird.
0: Yeah, and what you might expect in an urban setting, a park or something, where there are lots of people around, a bird might become habituated to people, and so it wouldn't fly away when it sees something that's obviously a human coming towards it. But if, if something is not obviously a human, if it's this big umbrella shape or something like that, this would be a new threat and the bird doesn't know what it is. And so maybe it would fly away much sooner because right. it's sort of not understood uh, what that is. Yeah. And then they did, um, so, so they did two different studies. They compared the cardinal and the song sparrow because they thought that maybe the song sparrows would let you approach closer potentially because this camouflage the then in their sort of separate experiment they did this human versus umbrella and eye contact versus no eye contact and they did that part only with the song sparrows. So what did they find just sort of most generally?
1: So what they found was kind of as we discussed that we might expect at the beginning that um, urban birds let you approach a little closer before they flushed than rural birds did. Um, the as they put it in the article, the flight initiation distance was shorter for urban populations than it was for rural.
0: Yeah, and they found this was true for song sparrows. It was true for cardinals. It was true uh, for all of the different human versus umbrella eye contact versus no eye contact cases. Right. The, that relationship that the urban birds let you get closer was true in all of those. However, it wasn't always statistically significant in all of those. Sometimes the p-value which is what they used to assess statistical significance, was just uh, a little uh, sort of over the threshold for statistical significance. Um,
1: Which might have more to do with sample size than uh, the significance of the effect in reality.
0: Yeah, it's hard to say. The fact that they found the same type of effect in all the different cases, both species, all the different approach scenarios, suggests that the effect is there. And that makes you think, well, the p-value isn't significant, but... Maybe it's a sample size issue. Who knows? P-values are certainly sensitive to, to sample size. On the other hand, uh, y- if it was a, a huge, really powerful, obvious effect, you would expect it to be significant. And they had similar sample size in the part of their study that did find a significant effect and and the part of the study that didn't. Um, 20-some birds in each um, of the urban and rural classes for both those studies. So, mm. um, so I, I actually was a little... Surprised, and I think that introduce, introduces just a little bit of um, caution in how you interpret this, that with it, at least in, in some cases, they didn't find a statistically significant effect here. Yeah. Nevertheless, the pattern appears pretty consistent uh, over their different
1: tests. Yeah. The other really consistent pattern they found is that there was a strong correlation between the alert distance and um, the flushing distance essentially. So um, birds that became alert at a greater distance also flushed at a greater distance. Birds that became alert at a shorter distance from the human also flushed at a shorter distance.
0: Yeah and this is this actually might be a little uh, moment for a slight digression. Um, One thing about this study that that surprised me a little, I don't I haven't really read too much of this kind of, of study before. Mostly I work with observational data where you're not really uh, doing anything to influence or manipulate the birds on purpose. Right. A study like this is really is influencing and manipulating those birds. They, they're walking towards it, trying to make it fly away. Sure. For that reason, a study like this could potentially have negative effects on the birds if you're really preventing them from getting time that they need to eat or defend their territories. Or whatever.
1: Right. And they were doing these surveys for the treatments during the breeding season.
0: Right. Yeah. So So for that reason, there's sort of a different set of considerations that go into designing a study like this you want to you want to be able to do the research and get a good answer you know get reliable results but you don't want to disturb the birds any more than is necessary to get that answer right so once we've got enough data to get our answer then we, we stop and stop disturbing the yeah. birds.
1: And it should be noted that this was approved by the Animal Health and Welfare Department of the university where the study was designed. Yeah, so. all,
0: all universities would have some sort of an a review, ethics review board to make sure that these right. comply with sort of... And and I don't think that, uh, you know, these are urban birds in public parks. There are people walking by every time. This is <laughs> right. This is not a study that's likely yeah. to have a really negative impact on the birds. But nevertheless, you have to consider it. How did we get into that?
1: We were talking about uh, the alert distance in correlation with the flushing distance.
0: Oh, yeah. So so in relation to the the flight distance being correlated with the alert distance, if that is a really tight correlation, then maybe in the future you could say, well, we don't even need to get close enough to make the bird flush at all. We could just get close enough to make it give that sort of alert behavior, and then we could say, we know what we need to know, we can back off and leave the bird hmm. Um it, it seemed, I don't, they didn't say that that's why they were doing that, but it would seem to me sort of an, an obvious next step. If you're getting the same information from both of your measures, from your flight distance and your alert distance, then you don't need to measure both. You can measure one and you've got all the information.
1: That's a really good point.
0: However, they, when I look at the plot here of the flight distance versus the alert distance, and that sort of the relationship and how tightly correlated they are, it's not super tight, Um, they're correlated, birds that show alert behaviors earlier also fly away earlier, but there's a lot of scatter around that, and so I I think if I were doing a study, I would not use alert distance as a proxy for flight distance, I think I would, um, given how much scatter there is in that correlation, I would still keep walking until the thing actually flies away.
1: Yeah, it would be interesting to see uh, what other studies have found in terms of that correlation, how tight it is in other similar studies. Since this is such a rich area of the literature, and a lot of people have done similar studies to this.
0: Yeah, these authors did did mention just the fact that, that alert distance, because it's a more subjective measure, is might be a little harder to pin down, might show more variability than the flight distance, which yeah. is a really obvious measure.
1: Yeah. So, what did they find in terms of um, differences between? The treatments for the song sparrows, the, the four different kinds of approaches they did for the song sparrows
0: Yeah, so for the the human versus the big umbrella and yeah. for the eyes versus not, it was sort of a mixed bag at least from a statistical perspective. So we've already said that that the the pattern was pretty much the same always that the urban birds let you get closer than the rural birds. but the significance of the differences uh, was there in some cases and, and not significantly different in other cases. And it didn't make a whole lot of sense. So, so they did find that, um,
1: if I'm recalling this correctly, they did find that the, they found that the approach treatment alone, umbrella versus no umbrella, sunglasses, no sunglasses, didn't have a significant effect on the, 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 flush distance, the flight initiation distance, but that coupled with the habitat, it did. So urban birds flush sooner for humans than they did for the umbrellas, but rural birds reacted the same to both the human and the umbrella.
0: Yeah, and this this suggests what we would call an, an interaction between the habitat type, the urban versus rural, and the uh, approach that either the human or the sort of other umbrella figure. Right. And this is what you'd expect. So if you think, so to put this in sort of like, uh, real world terms, if you think that urban birds have become accustomed to humans, but not accustomed to weird looking umbrella things, (laughs) then you'd say, okay, when a human is approaching an urban bird, the urban bird's going to stay put for longer. But when an umbrella is approaching It's going to not know what this thing is. It's going to view it as a a potential new threat. And so it's going to fly away early. Rural birds, on the other hand, have never seen this weird looking umbrella thing. So they're going to fly away early in that case. But they also haven't seen all that many humans. And so they're going to fly away early in that case. So you're not going to see a difference really between a human and an umbrella in a rural setting. But in an urban setting, you will see a difference. So they did find that urban birds seem to be habituated to humans. They really found kind of no effect of the gaze. So it didn't matter whether the human was looking straight at the bird or kind of had the big sunglasses on to obscure the eyes. With the umbrella, it didn't matter whether the umbrella had eyes painted on it or not. The, the song spouse just didn't seem to be using that eye contact as any sort of cue for when they started flying, at least that this study could, could detect. Yeah. So, So this, you know, shows there's a difference in urban versus rural birds. It shows that to some extent, at least for these species that do well in in human areas, song sparrows and cardinals, that the birds can can cope to some extent with higher human activity. They're, they're probably going to do okay in urban areas and parks, but it doesn't directly test whether they're able to cope because sort of individuals can learn and adapt their behavior or whether there's some sort of selection on the population from from a sort of evolutionary adaptive standpoint, and whether urban populations um, are sort of adapting to have birds that just, regardless of learning, let people get closer.
1: Right. We should say quickly that the study did find, as expected, that... Um, Cardinals have kind of a lower tolerance for humans than song sparrows and, and did flush quicker in both urban and rural environments.
0: Yep. Yeah, that's right. Though, again, we really can't pick apart whether that's because they're more conspicuous and not camouflaged or whether there's some other cause there. We, we have no idea what that cause is, but there right. was a difference there. Yep. Um, and really, that's not a to me, that's not a very interesting result, necessarily, because it, it gives us almost no insight into the of factors behind <laughs> right. it. Although, I don't know, maybe it suggests that, that, you know, if you're sort of looking for species that are going to be at risk um, as humans expand habitat, maybe this would suggest cardinals are going to be a little more at risk because they're going to be less tolerant in general than song sparrows of of human disturbance. Um, so I guess that's a little interesting from that perspective. Hmm. So one thing that just popped into my mind, I haven't thought about it too hard, but but one thing that might change how close a bird would let you get before it flies away is sort of might have nothing to do with with humans and how many humans there are, but it might have to do with how, with like the the amount of predators in the area. Yeah. So suppose there are lots of predators out in rural areas, there's raccoons and, and hawks and and all kinds of things there would be a selection pressure there for birds to flush sooner kind of no matter what the the disturbances the threat in an urban area if there were fewer predators maybe they there just wouldn't be any uh sort of selective advantage to flushing early no matter what
1: on the other hand that's a good point
0: yeah on the other hand maybe there's a lot of sort of outdoor cats in urban areas and so there's just more predators in general and so So that wasn't really investigated in here. They sort of tested, well, and they showed that there's a a human aspect to it. The urban birds are recognizing humans. But I wonder if sort of underlying predator um, pressure also would sort of would uh, have an effect on what kind of flushing behaviors like this you see.
1: Hmm.
0: They did, go ahead.
1: Yeah, I wonder also how the structure of the habitat and the environment changes um the escape behavior like whether you have some place to go that's better makes a difference <laughs> um or whether the only solution is just to expend energy and be in flight for a little bit and, to, and then to have to come back to the same area where you were
0: yeah do you have good hiding areas right or on the other hand you know how how well can you see around if you're in a mm. an, an area where the you know, there's a lot of twists and turns and you can't ever see very far. Um, You being the bird, (laughs) not being the person. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no, I got it. If you're a bird living in an area where you can't see very far, um, you might have different sort of flushing behaviors than if you're sort of out in a park with with like one line of trees and you've got big soccer fields on either side. Yeah. And you can see, you know, very easily a long way and, and can sort of watch objects approaching and may potentially better assess how much of a threat they are.
1: Mm, yep.
0: I don't think, uh, this article mentioned that they don't think there are really many studies of how that sort of landscape pattern, they call it, uh, affects the the flushing distance behavior in birds. Uh, but, but it would be a really interesting thing to study.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: They do mention a few uh, studies that I had not seen before, one of which was studying dark-eyed juncos in urban populations, and that study showed uh, a really fast adaptive evolution in boldness behaviors. So so this suggests that it was not a learned behavior that an individual bird is learning to be braver around humans, but actually that that local urban population just sort of evolved to have more bold um, birds. And there are an increasing number of studies sort of across a range of organisms that show rapid evolution uh, of, of organisms in human-dominated areas. There's one that I can think of off the top of my head that was looking at... I don't remember what exactly what water critter it was. Some sort of, some sort of uh, aquatic sort of microorganism. You'd be able to see it under a microscope or maybe even with a hand lens. And it lives in freshwater systems. And they were looking at how well it could tolerate salt water. And uh, they, were, they were sort of investigating this in relation to road salt. So in areas that get snow or ice in the winter and they salt the roads, that salt f- runs off the roads into nearby water bodies and can sometimes really increase the sort of salinity level of the water a fair bit. And so they were, they were looking at, at what happens to these little aquatic microorganisms. And so they brought them into the lab. And they put some of them in sort of plain fresh water and some of them in uh, water with increasing levels of salts. And they let them sort of go through 30 generations or something. And then they tested how each of these populations survived in, in sort of another increase in salt. Hmm. And they found a really quick evolution. Within 10 to 30 generations, the, the populations that had been placed in higher salt water, evolved to be able to survive higher salt. Huh, cool. Um, and a similar thing has been shown with plants, uh, with, with I don't remember, again, I don't remember exactly the kind of plant, but uh, along a gradient, along a road, there were salts washing off the road. The plants close to the road evolve fairly quickly uh, and adapt to be able to survive the higher salt uh, concentrations. <laughs> so this is, that is sort of a, a cool... Um, you know, n- no longer surprising result, I wouldn't say. Like, like, no one would be astonished if you found an organism that really rapidly adapts to, to human um, encroachment. But, but it really has only been tested in a, in a few different individual species, and um, figuring out which species can adapt quickly like that, and which can't, uh, is going to be a con- very productive area of research. The funding for my PhD position comes from a project funded by Science Foundation Ireland. I'm at University College Dublin in the ecological modeling group of John Gearsley. If you want to find out more about our research in the ecological modeling group, you can go to www.ucd.ie backslash